0: We are in Malachi chapter 2. Our text tonight, we will be unpacking verses 10, 11, and 12 of Malachi chapter 2. But before we visit and unpack the text, I think it would be nice and helpful to revisit the story that has led up to this point. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came, Nebuchadnezzar came, God brought the Babylonians to Judah to execute his judgment on his people because of their sin. And this was in 586. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, the people were taken into captivity. This was the third of four occurrences, 605, 597, 586 and 582 bc is when these deportations took place but 586 of course is the one that most people tend to remember that was when jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and so the people are living in captivity and then there is a change of command in 539 bc the persians overthrow the babylonians establishing themselves as the new superpower A year after this in 538 BC, Cyrus, their leader, issues a new law allowing the people of Judah, those who wish to, may return home while still living under Persian control. And so the people begin to return to Judah, begin to return to Jerusalem. And one would think that upon returning, they would begin to rebuild the temple, their spiritual center within the nation, but they don't. They've got a lot of other things going on. They're really busy and they are filled with many excuses. And this goes on for multiple years, some 18 years later, God finally has enough. And in 520 BC, he sends Haggai to preach a series of sermons to call the people to repent, to call the people to stop making excuses for why they can't do what it is that they should be doing and to rebuild the temple. By 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. And life is good for a while. And then life gets hard. In 485 BC, Xerxes is the leader of Persia. And he begins to implement a new taxation that focuses the tax burden on the provinces, the non-ethnic Persian entities. Well, the people of Judah felt this burden quite heavily. In fact, in Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, he recounts the hardships that the people had experienced due to these high taxations. Interest rates were very high. They climbed nearly 40 to 50% at their height. Debt slavery at an unprecedented level. Confiscation of personal property and other economic hardships. It was a tough time and it was a hard time and their spiritual zeal for the lord has begun to wane spiritual apathy has begun to set in and so in 460 bc god sends malachi and he opens this address by affirming his love for his people his undeserving electing love for his people. And then, after he tells them how much he loves them, he is going to give a list, a long and distinguished list, of the different sin and problems that are taking place within their community. And that brings us to chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father... Has not one God created us? Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi introduces this dual concept that God is Father and that God is Creator. Not synonymous, but they do complement each other. In fact, the prophet Isaiah illustrates this complementary nature in Isaiah 64.8. He's going to picture God as Father and then shift and picture God as Creator. In Isaiah 64.8, he says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. And then he switches to the emphasis on Creator. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We have a father and we have a creator. The people have a father and they have a creator. What you need to understand is that the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament, it was an expression of this unique and exclusive relationship that the Lord had established with Israel by his sovereign grace in choosing them. In choosing Abraham could have chose someone else he didn't he could have chose a different nation other than israel he didn't the, the people would have when he says have we not all one father this would have really clicked with them of course we have of course we have a father they knew this they knew about the special covenantal relationship they all this is, this is something they, they, they understood and in the new testament we see another special relationship. Thankful that there's multiple covenants. I'm thankful for the new covenant. But in the New Testament, there is another type of relationship. The people of Israel, yes. The implication is, yes, you're sons. in, In Christ, within the New Testament, we are seen as these adopted sons. We are seen as sons of God. New Testament's filled with passages referring to believers as sons of God. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 comes to mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I don't know if you heard verse 5. I'll, I'll say it again for a point of emphasis. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. We're sons of the the creator of the universe, and that is good news. That's, that's, That's amazing that he adopted us to be his sons. That we have a father. And I don't presume... think that everyone in here has that relationship. I don't presume to think for a moment that just because you're in here tonight you are or have been adopted as a son or that God is your father. But for those of you who have placed your faith in In Jesus Christ, who have submitted to his lordship, who have repented and continue to repent of your sins, it has been granted to be sons. For those of us who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. That is good news. Like, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will tonight, guys. Woo! So as Malachi was saying, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So we have a father, and the implication is is that he has children. We're his children. That makes us spiritual brothers and sisters. And that is the focus of this message, of this part in verse 10. The focus here in verse 10 deals with the proper treatment of one's spiritual siblings as we are about to see or the lack thereof the focus here is the treatment of one's spiritual siblings or kind of missing that mark not treating them how they should be we'll continue next line why then are we faithless to one another Uh, So here he introduces the problem. Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. The focus is not on the profaning of the covenant. The focus in verse 10 is not treating your brothers faithfully. The profaning of the covenant, that's the result. That's the byproduct. That's the cause. that's, That's the effect of the cause. If it helps you to think of it like this, like we have horizontal relationships, we have vertical relationships, horizontal, okay? So like all of you in here are part of the horizontal relationship I have. I have a horizontal relationship with each one of you, and I have a vertical relationship with God. The problem here in verse 10 is that this horizontal relationship, it's kind of been messed up. And it is directly affecting the vertical relationship with God. You've profaned the covenant of our fathers. Like Things are are not how they should be with you and our Father. And that comes directly because things can't be good with you and our Father because things aren't good with you and each other. It's been profaned the word profaned here it is to to make something that is holy unholy to treat something that is special as common as insignificant they are treating something that is so special that is so wonderful this covenantal relationship they have with yahweh as garbage a great illustration I think of the story of Jacob and Esau how Jacob exchanged his birthright he took something so special so valuable and exchanged it for a bowl of soup he profaned it that's some imagery there for you but like much of this story in Malachi the issue is dealing with the people's errors they're messing up it's dealing with sin That's how, actually, a lot of scripture is. Scripture deals a lot with sin. Not always. I think I preached a message from Luke chapter 12. It's on SoundCloud. I don't think we talked about sin that night. Most of the time, a lot of times, we talk about sin here. Which makes me think, um, I was in New Jersey, and... Anybody from New Jersey here? I'm in New Jersey, and I was at church on Sunday... It's always interesting um, going and and sitting there and and hearing um, the pastor preach. But my friend didn't want to take me to church. Well, he wanted to take me to church, but he didn't want to take me to the church that he and his family went to. And I said, no, no, I'll go with you. He said, no, I I really don't want to take you. I was like, it's fine. I'll go with you to church. He's like, no, I I want to take you to this church over here because I think you'll like it a lot better. And I said, no, I don't want it. I don't care whether I maybe like that one more. You and your family go here, so I want to go here. And reluctantly, I went with him. And I said, why, why didn't you want to take me? He said, well, he said, because I, I know you weren't going to like it. I said, but why? He said, because the pastor, he normally preaches really soft, feel-good, surface-level sermons. You rarely learn much about the Bible at all and we almost never talk about sin. And unfortunately, that is very characteristic of many American Protestant churches today. We would rather sidestep and tap dance around the difficult parts of the Bible, um, because... We would rather spare you your feelings. We would rather you not feel awkward or uncomfortable or weird because the passage is talking about sin. Um, we talk about sin a lot here at Lynchburg City Church. Uh, for those of you who, who come here, I, I've heard some people say, yes, I, uh, I've heard some people tell me when they bring their friends, yeah, sometimes I kind of give them a heads up of, might be a little different than what they're used to. Might be kind of intense at times. It's okay. And the reason I have no problem with this is because the Bible talks a lot about sin because um, God takes sin seriously. Like, He sent His Son to die because of our sin. And see, I don't mind whether. Sometimes my tone is harsh or whether we talk about things that are uncomfortable because I would rather you sit here and maybe feel uncomfortable and hear the truth than for me to ignore it and the next time you hear it is when you stand face to face before the creator of the universe and he is not happy. They have profaned the covenant. Things are not as it should be, guys. Things have been messed up. They're not treating each other how they should. And this is directly impacting how things are with God. And perhaps the most unique part of verse 10 is Malachi says, Why then are we faithless? If you you see that, if I had a pen, I would circle it. But it's kind of, it's taped up there so the ink wouldn't stick. But why then are we faithless? Because I'm studying for this passage and i thought well that's kind of interesting why does he say we because if you find this surprising you're not alone one of the commentators i was reading it's like this is naturally surprising when you see it says why then are we because it seems to suggest that malachi is implying his own participation in this very crime he doesn't do this anywhere else outside this verse and so One commentator said, its use by the prophet in the charge against Judah is made appropriate as he is stressing the unity of God's people. Why then are we faithless to one another? He is stressing the unity of God's people. And God's people cannot be unified when they are treating each other faithlessly god's people cannot be unified when they are not treating each other the way they should be when they are rude when they are selfish when they are cold when they are mean when they are unfriendly i can make a long list and so he stresses the unity by seemingly including himself in the very indictment that he is giving to the people And we continue into verse 11. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Here he locates the abomination to be in Jerusalem. The violation that is taking place is taking place in jerusalem the spiritual center of the nation this might not mean a whole lot to you the fact that he mentions jerusalem here so let me phrase it a little differently some of you guys are your liberty students yeah I... <laughs> I was a liberty student lived lived there on campus seven years on the dorms doing undergrad doing graduate school and i would hear stories as i'm sure some of you hear stories and you hear these stories and you think wait are you, are you serious that took place over at wait that was in the east campus dorm room like and there was someone there while that was happening we that was going that was going on at, i just hung out with those people. i just went to that sports game and, and you're saying that happened over really no you con- that wouldn't have happened not here this, this is the world's most exciting university. Have you seen that? That's, 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 we're the world's most exciting university. And, and I, I, you know what? I bet you were mistaken for that other school. That's, that sounds like something that would have happened at James Madison University. Not, not here. Not at Liberty. And I love Liberty. I, I, I love it. I love, love Liberty. And you're shocked. Some of you, like, when you hear these stories, you're like, what in the world were they thinking? Like, what, what is going on? How, how could that, if here, this is shocking. This is shocking for the people. Malachi says, this is happening in the very last place to think that something like this would be happening, that this would be going on. Judah has been faithless. Back to verse 11. They have been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Haggai comes, 520 BC. Guys, stop making excuses. Get your stuff together. Start rebuilding the temple. And they do. For Judah has profaned this sanctuary of the Lord. This was, this was a very special place that God had designated. Isaiah 66 1 says, If heaven is my throne, then earth is my footstool. This was a very special place, and it says, Judah has profaned the sanctuary, which he loves, which who loves, which God loves. He, he loves this, this place. It's a special place. And one commentator also writes that another alternative to him loving the sanctuary is also including the fact that as we know back in verse 2 he also his love for his people how can you guys be acting like this how can you guys be doing these things which he loves and here we get to the nuts and bolts of the issue and he has married the daughter of a foreign god So I'm gonna pause right here, cut the engines, and make some applications. The issue here is not that they have married foreign women, women who says, daughters of a foreign God. I see no issue scripturally that suggests that marrying someone of a different ethnic background is is, is problem. Um, what is happening here is they are marrying women who are outside the community of faith. That's the issue. They are marrying women who are outside the community of faith who do not have the same father that the rest of them have. And that is very problematic. And Moses has warned against this sort of thing back in Deuteronomy 7. He's warned against this, of pursuing these type of romantic relationships. Saying that they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. He's warned them because this is the problem, because this is dangerous. Our hearts, our hearts are constantly at battle, battling the Lord. That's why in Psalms 86, the psalmist prays, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name, because just like his heart, my heart, it's going a million different directions. It's it's fragmented. And I'm warring against this issue in my life, and I'm battling temptation here and here. And Moses knew a long time ago, that it is folly, folly, knowing, knowing that temptations are, are strong enough, it is folly to bring in another person who is a slave of sin, who is trapped in spiritual bondage, who is spiritually blind. Like, just, there's enough temptations. I mean, I can hardly go and see half the movies out there these days like i can hardly walk like down uh, the checkout line at walmart like my lust capacity cannot handle it like there's so many things and then oh by the way bringing in this type of rom- this type of relationship into your life foolish missionary dating people say is it is it wrong to date is it wrong joe is it a sin to date someone who's an unbeliever um be careful how i answered this i would say and and because you it's how you word it is it wrong to date they are marrying people here is it wrong to date well this is a, a, a very strange cultural phenomenon and nuance that wasn't quite experienced at the same level here in the ancient near east let alone the first century so what i say is it a sin to date someone who's an unbeliever i would probably say no but i would say it's very foolish stupid silly um, whatever other words in the thesaurus that line up with those just use those that's what i would say but but it happens i can think of three right now boom just boom 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 three people i know right now and the problem is you get into these relationships. Either you're in one or you're, you're thinking about getting into one. And I, I hear the same response. I, I've heard this a lot. And if you've told me this personally, trust me, I've heard this a dozen other times. I've heard this, well, I can't break up with them because I'm their only Christian friend. Or I can't just stop talking to them or I can't put distance between me and them because I'm the only Christian influence they have in their life. Some of you guys, here are like, yeah, I just had this conversation three days ago with someone else. And I would say, is it, why do you think it's your responsibility to be their only Christian friend? It's not your responsibility to be their only Christian friend. It's not your responsibility to save them. Jonah two nine says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'll tell you right now, if you see a spiritual warfare and the devil line, and it, this is exactly how it's phrased you can't break up with them they'll never come to know jesus or oh, you can't stop talking to them like they you're the only christian friend you're the only thing keeping them afloat and and the hope is, is i'll stay in this and i'll push them toward christ see relationships they do one of two things you either will push someone toward christ or you'll pull them away from christ like there is no middle ground there, there is no switzerland in this analogy Relationships do one of two things. They will push someone toward Christ or pull someone away from Christ. And I know people who are just stuck in those relationships and they feel like, well, I'm going to be there because I want to be that person to push them toward Christ. You know what happens? The great majority of the time, they end up getting pulled away from him. That's what happens the great majority of the time. And they buy into these lies. Well, you're their only Christian friend. You can't leave them. They'll never come to know Jesus. You can't abandon them. What kind of representation is that of Christ? And of course, then there is also another angle to be seen. And it is the angle of when people are... It is, it is when people are how do I say this, the Christian dating standard. As many of you would say, okay, well, I would never, ever make any type of mistake like the people here or even get close to that. The problem oftentimes in the American Protestant church is the, the this, this Christian dating standard. Like, the, the, the minimum Christian dating standard is, are you a Christian? Okay, well, you pass. Uh, yeah, welcome, come on in. That's, that's it, Like like... Uh, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? You do? Some of you got a picture. Some of you got, I think I sent out like 15 messages I sent to you. and all that. But um, I'm coming across this part in MacArthur's book. And he says this, this modern phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus. Like that is, like what is that? That's like the most vague, abstract thing. That could really mean whatever you want it to mean for whoever happens to be saying it. But that's often the, the standard for Christian dating. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're good to go. I'll take your application, okay? And I remind you, Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus. The devil had a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm stealing this from MacArthur right now, but it's something to think about as we throw around Christian cliches, especially without defining what they are and what they are not. That's a dangerous game to play, especially. When you think about what's at stake in the context of this, they are marrying the daughters of a foreign god. People sometimes say, "Okay, okay well, I don't want to just leave you there without a solution." Usually, when people tell me, "Oh, I, I believe in God," I usually say, "Which God?" I talk to a lot of soldiers because I'm an army chaplain in the reserve, in the reserves, and. I'll hear people come and say, "Oh, yeah, man, I, I pray to, I pray all the time." I say, "Oh, who do you pray to? I pray to God? Oh, that's good. Which one?" I try to disguise my facial expressions more so it actually, like I'm, like I'm being really I'm trying to be genuine. We kind of laugh, but as silly as it is, like I disguise the, with disguise the, the tears with laughter because it's, it's just it's really awful. And, and so. I like to ask, what do, what do you mean by that? How, how do you define that? So why I, I said at the beginning, um, some in here, you can call God Father because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ because you've submitted to his Lordship. You've bowed to his Lordship. You've repented of your sins. And your life is also marked by not a momentary repentance, but a continual repentance that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Right doctrine matters. It, it does. But I like to have practical questions. I mean, if someone comes to me, my, if my little sister, if she came to me and she said, hey, this guy's interested in me, i say, oh, well, tell me about him. I don't want to learn. And finding the right questions are, are often helpful, and so I I'd want to know. Hey, well, is he a member of a, of a local church? This guy that's interested in you? Why or why not? Well, is, he in, is he involved, at least? Is, does, he, does he at least attend somewhere? Does he go anywhere? Why or why not? What about a small group? Is, is he a part of a small group? Is he involved in that? Serving and loving and having this mutual edification with other believers? Is that, if a guy is showing interest in my little sister, I, these are legitimate questions to ask. They have a mentor in their life. They have an older guy. I, I don't mean like your 19-year-old prayer leader, but you have an older guy. And I, I, prayer leaders are awesome. I was a prayer leader for three years, and I lived in the dorms. Um, do they have an older guy, older girl. I don't, I don't mean your 22-year- old .RA. like those are helpful, yes, but there are some things that are quite beyond that, that you need. They have an older guy. I can think of two older guys in my life. One is sitting here to my left, and one. One is a, a guy at student care. He's 10 years older than me. And Justin and I, would probably share the same guy. Um, but do you have an older guy in your life? Or do you have an older girl in your life? Why are why not? And if you don't, are you pursuing those type of relationships? The problem oftentimes within the American Protestant Church, I'm throwing that phrase out a lot tonight, is that we think, okay, well, I'll just sit here until, like, someone comes and gets me. No, guys... If you don't have that, pursue that. Pursue older guys. Pursue older girls. Find that person. Find that person. Don't be scared to say, hey, can I spend some time with you? Hey, can we get together? Hey, can we talk? Just hang out? Don't be afraid to do that. That is a very good and godly and beneficial thing. It's hard to walk through life as it is on your own. What type of person is this like? Are they a generous type person? I asked my little sister, are they a generous type person? Are they a giving person? Do they, do they give to the church? Do they, do they help those who are in need? I, I once was talking to a guy and he, he told me that he was struggling with giving. He was struggling with giving. He said, yeah. I said, why are you struggling with giving? I said, dude, I just wiped my bank account out. Like two grand in two months. I said, what were you doing? He's like, I was pursuing a girl I'm like good grief man like it Dude, you can pursue me for two grand like <laughs> I think I think those questions are just practical helps guys practical helps practical helps and, and there is it's never anything wrong with in these moments going and asking someone who is older or wiser or who you respect is hey what do you think about this guy he's been showing interest in me or hey, hey what do you think about this girl uh, i think she's cool uh, that's smart it's not a bad thing it's a good thing and i would i would recommend you do that this is a big deal we're talking about it not because i'm just want to talk about this tonight. I'm talking about because Malachi is talking about this. This is the problem that they're messing up in. And I want to be clear on this, guys. If you have to nag someone, that girl in your life, that guy in your life, if you have to nag that person, come to church with me tonight. Come to small group with me tonight. Hey, you know, be this type of person. If you have to keep nagging them now, like while you're dating them, when they're supposed to be on their best behavior there is a strong possibility and probability that you will continue to have to nag them and beg them to do these things 5 and 10 and 15 years later. Like, right now, when you're dating them, that's when they're supposed to be on their best behavior. When I was getting to know Diana, I think one of the things that stood out to me right away is that she was a part of a local church church and that she was attending. Like sometimes her sisters would go with her, but most of the time she'd just go by herself. She'd just go by herself. And I was really impressed by that. What really impresses me, and this is just personal, this is me, is when I see like, couples that come to church or come to small group. And what really impresses me is when the guy or the girl will come to church or come to small group, even if their significant other is sick or they couldn't make it, that impresses me. Like, show me that guy, show me that girl. I want to meet them. That impresses me. That impresses me a lot. That's a great thing. You know, I'm, I'm in the movies. Uh, I was watching Hunger Games. The, Yeah some Hunger Games fans in here and there was a trailer that came up for Zoolander 2 I'm not recommending you see Zoolander 2 and uh, brace yourself but I'm there and this trailer comes up I guess I don't talk about Zoolander 2 but I guess when I do I talk about it at church so there's a meme And this scene comes up, and this scene was just so, it was comical and applicable to this text. They've married the daughters of a foreign god. And so, because this is the temptation that comes. And so there's a scene, and I think it's Salma Hayek's character rolls up on a motorcycle, gets off, the camera pans back to to Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, and Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller, they've got this deer kind of caught in the headlights look. And then Owen Wilson says, She's hot. I trust her. I imagine that if these women were unattractive, Malachi may never even have written about them. I don't hear a lot of people who say, man, I just, I'm so struggling because I'm in this relationship with this girl who is just terribly unattractive, like says no one ever. You never hear that. And this is a problem, because, and I think this is a real temptation that I want to make sure that we're aware of. I think it's very plausible and possible that this was a temptation playing into the very fact that they are marrying them anyways. Because the lie is, oh man, I'm in this relationship, and, and oh, she's so beautiful, or he's so attractive, and you know if I pass up on this person, I may never get another chance with a person like this, if I pass up here and now. Or, you know, I don't even have that many opportunities and another one might never come along let me be clear just because you can be in a relationship with someone just because you can date them doesn't mean you should and that's real temptation and I understand it gentlemen let me be clear she may be hot but so is hell That's my favorite Mark Driscoll quote. <laughs> but I, un- I understand that the temptation. I understand the desire. And it's something that we, we need to be guarded against. Guys and gals who, who are here. It's something that we need to be guarded against. There is a reason that Moses warned of this. And the reason is is that they will turn your sons away from God. They will do that. There's some Bible character named Solomon, and it's a story. It's a real danger. Just because you can date someone doesn't mean you should. And so there are serious consequences in verse 12. Explains what that is. He says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This verse is filled with interpretive challenges, and I'm going to try and dice through that as well as I can, but the focal point will be on the word descendant and the word cut off, and I am in the ESV. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants. The reason this poses such interpretive challenges is because if you have a different translation than mine, it probably doesn't say descendant. If you have the NIV, it says whoever he may be. If you have the KJV, it says the master and the scholar, and still others, him that walks and him that answers, the aroused one and the lover, the protector and the appealer, the protector and the oppressor, whether nomads or settlers. So, yeah, a little confusing. The word descendant here is an idiom, I-D-I-O-M. And it is, if you're not familiar what that is, it's, it's, it's a dialect, it can be a dialect of a people or part of a, a country. It can be a form of expression natural to a language, natural, uh, natural to a person, to a group of people. A common expression of this, you say, it's, it's raining cats and dogs. Most of you, you say, I know what that means. It means it's raining really hard. Someone who's maybe not from around these parts, who's not American, you say it's raining cats and dogs, and they think, oh, no, are they okay?" So so that's that's how it's being used. In in the army, we have a saying. We say, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I learned what that was when I was a cadet, and we were learning how to do uh, urban warfare, room clearing, going room to room. So we say, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. Um, So this is how it's being employed here in verse 12. And essentially, it is taken to mean and depict a whole range of people within Judah. And we go back, and we remember that they're going to be cut off they're going to be cut off and this is the other problem because cut off can mean childlessness premature death death before the age of 60 death before the age of 52 the terminations of one's line or descent exclusion from resting with one's fathers excommunication and human execution one commentator suggests that the person's line will be terminated by god and possibly that he will be denied life in the life to come it doesn't take a large imagination for us To recognize that verse 12 is speaking of serious consequences. It doesn't take a large imagination to realize that if verse 11 is taking place and these people are marrying people who are not of the same spiritual community, that there is definitely some cause and effect that will take place. When you have friends, when you have kids, when that person that you're with is not... A follower when they do not love Jesus the way that you love Jesus that can pose serious problems that we might learn that we might not make these type of mistakes that we might help those of us because whether you're in a situation like that right now or you're kind of on the verge of a situation like that right now or you know someone who is in a situation like right now imagine one of those possibilities is is probably active right now, that you might tell them that you might either take these words to heart yourself or take them to heart in order to help and guide another person from the error that these people are making. Oh, that we would be wise in this way. And that if we are not what right looks like, that we would be. That we would repent, that we would turn, and that we would Correct whatever areas of weakness that we may have in our own life. So, as the band comes, I'd like to pray. God, we love you and we worship you. I thank you for Malachi, I thank you for what he said. Um, I pray that we would take it to heart, that it would help us. Um, whether it help us personally or help us to help someone else or whatever it may be, God, uh, I thank you for this. And so I pray as St. Augustine prayed so long ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things you want us to do. Enable to be what right looks like, Lord. Help us. Help us, God. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen.